Hi, this is Rabbi Dovi Ben Shushan from Congregation Magen Abraham, thanking you in advance for listening to the following Shi'ur Torah. I'd like to talk to you today about a sensitive topic. There is no way that we can close our eyes to what's going on in Eretz Israel today. The situation is so serious that I've been speaking with my brothers who live there in Eretz Israel, and they told me that over the years, there were the ups and downs of worry, but never did it come to a point where in Yerushalayim and HaKodesh, in areas that what you would know typically as the main parts of the city, places that when you went on vacation, packed with people, packed, is now empty. Where people literally are worried, walking from street to street, and block to block, always looking over their shoulder. Now you know Yerushalayim, is actually made up of alleyways. And because of that, it's very difficult in that type of a city, in that type of a setup, to feel fully comfortable on walking down side streets where any moment anyone can jump out at you and chas shalom, we heard about the stabbings that were going on over the last month or two. So because of that, in daytime, not nearly as many people as before in the most populous part of the city. At nighttime, very few people on the streets at all. This bothered me to such an extent. I was very lucky this past week. I was on the phone with a great tzaddik, a mikubal from Eretz Yisrael, a great Talmud Chacham. And we were talking about the situation in Eretz Yisrael. And I was just asking for some guidance, just to understand what can we do. Maybe we can do something more. Maybe we can make a difference. And I told him, I said, you know, we're learning extra. We're actually praying as much as we can. Every time Petichat Ha'echal was saying Tehillim, Farid Yisrael. At night, the guys are coming earlier to be able to put in more hours of learning, more minutes of learning, just for the sake of Eretz Yisrael. So what more can we do? And he told me something that I thought was powerful. And he hit really hard, really hard on this point. And it opened my eyes, and I'd like to share it with you. He said to me, do you know why Shamayim is allowing the Arabs and their stabbings to be going on the way they are? Is not because of them. It's because of us. He says the reason why the Arabs can stab Jews is because Jews are stabbing Jews. I said, Haraf? Jews? I never met a Jew in my life that stabbed anybody. What do you mean? He says, what do you mean? Didn't David HaMelech say, Don't we know that the tongue is the sharpest blade, more sharp than any knife or any sword? Even in the world, they say that the tongue is sharper than the sword. Because we are wielding our knives through the blades of our tongue and how we cut up people with our words. That gave the Arabs, the goyim of the world, the right to cut us up as well. These were words that hit me very hard. Wow, I never looked at it like that. What a message. And I stopped and I said, but Harav, I, I don't get it. He says, I'm telling you. The moment that Kalal Yisrael is more careful with their words, where they realize that with a few words you can destroy somebody's life. 
They realize that with a few words, you literally can break someone to pieces and they might not show it to you on the outside. They have pride. And they'll laugh it off sometimes. They'll make it like nothing. But on the inside, they're crying. Literally, you can destroy the lives in the future of people. With a few words, you can destroy someone's business. With a few words, you can destroy someone's marriage. With a few words, you can literally break a person's confidence that they'll never get back up on their feet again. With a few words. The rabbi told me that words were given to us as a godly koah to be able to inspire people. With words, we're supposed to build worlds, not destroy them. And because of that, the rabbi said, we didn't realize. But what separates us from the animals the chayot, the behemot of the world, is the ability to speak. That godly function was given to us to inspire and bring light to the world, to pray to Hashem, to be able to build people, to reach their potential in koah, not to destroy people. He says, we got to stop the stabbings, but not the Arabs, us, Klal Israel. If we would stop stabbing with our tongue, they would have no power to stab with their blades. What a message. Well, what a, I, I, it hit me like a ton of bricks. And I started to think for myself, you know, I teach as well, not just as the rabbi in the shul, but I teach also in high school as well, 12th grade. So I'm in the high school system. I saw recently, not too long ago, there was a study done on bullying in schools. And I saw that, according to this study, 75% of bullying in schools is not physical bullying. It's verbal abuse. Lady, did you hear that? There is an abuse out there. It's an actual abuse. But it's not a physical abuse. It's a verbal abuse. It's an abuse through words. Where they gang up on a kid and they torment the kid with their words. And day after day, they put this poor kid, this victim, through an onslaught of words. They make fun of him. They start making terrible jokes about the family. They start putting the kid's future literally down to nothing. And these kids never survive. They never rebound. Ladies, I want to tell you something. Today, I can walk to a classroom. In the first five minutes of meeting these kids for new, and I can tell you, walking around the classroom, which kids were verbally abused, whether by school, whether by parents at home, whether by neighbors or people, friends they hung out with. You could see on them, something is broken. It brings me to tears to talk about this subject, I'll tell you the honest truth. Because I've watched it over the years. I've watched it from my own classmates, all the way up to my own students all the way up to the society that we live in today. And some of these kids, boys and girls alike, sometimes, forgive me, the girls are even worse. Because the girls are so clicky that when there's one girl that doesn't fit into that group, she becomes the bashing target of the year. She becomes the class entertainment. And it's like a voodoo doll that they just keep sticking pins in, one after the next to see until she screams. These words destroy people. These powerful, merciless words literally send kids home day after day crying. 
And the parents cry with them. And the parents don't know what to do. And yes, the parents call the school when they hope to enlist the help of the school. And they ask, you know, maybe the principals can get involved, the Rebbe can get involved, the teacher can get involved, and the schools do as much as they can. But how much can they do? They can't be around every kid every minute of the day. It's impossible. And what about when the kids are going home on bus? The only one on the bus that's monitoring is basically a bus driver or maybe somebody a grade or two older than most of the kids on the bus? Do you know how much abuse so many of these kids go through? Tormented with the words and they are so merciless. And the lives of these kids are destroyed. And they carry it on them for years. They're broken. And they go to sleep every night crying, begging their parents. They don't want to go back to school the next day. And don't think for one minute that this exists only by kids, only by teenagers. How much you see this on a more adolescent level of the kids in schools. You see it as much in an adult level when it comes to adults as well. Today, we'll rip anybody that crosses our path. If it's a school, we'll rip them to pieces. Rabbis, forget it the way we talk about rabbis today. Anything that pops into our heads and we want to rip, we have no holds bar. We lost our sensitivity. That filtering process that once took place in the mind to stop for a minute and think, should I say that? Shouldn't I say that? What am I going to cause? What damage is going to come out of the words that I'm about to speak? Am I about to destroy somebody's life? Somehow or other, that filtering process just isn't kicking in anymore. And we have this knee-jerk reaction. We think we speak. We think we speak. We think we speak. And later on, we look back and say, oops, did I really say that? Oh my gosh. That was terrible. How did I say that? But now it's too late. Because now you just broke someone's world. Now you just destroyed someone's future. Those are the stabbings that the rabbi was talking about. When the Jewish people stop stabbing each other with their words, no longer will the Goyim be able to stab us with their blades. What a powerful message. Ladies, I can't tell you, I didn't sign up for that side of the job. I'm on my third cell phone. You have to understand what we're dealing with. The problems that we carry in our own community and how many of them come back to the insensitivity of a few words. And it all started with somebody that said something that they should not have said. And the whole avalanche could have been saved if someone had just a degree of a sensitivity to stop and say, that's disgusting. How in the world did I say that? And I'm not just talking about friends. But the terrible fighting that's going on between neighbors that started from a few words. Or the inter-family fighting where you have between siblings, sister-in-laws, mother-in-laws, forget it. And it goes on and on and on. And it all was from a few blades that were thrown out of the mouth of the tongue of a word or two that cut into somebody else. And look how much damage it caused. Ladies, I want to share with you something very powerful. 
And it's powerful to me because, you know, it's one thing when you hear something, but it's another thing when you've lived it and you know the people so close that you're involved with, that you grew up with. A few years back, I went to a wedding of an old classmate of mine who was marrying off his first daughter. And you know how these weddings go. Now, the girls, they're great. The women, they basically, quick, they basically know how to keep in touch with everybody from high school. They keep the class reunions going for years and years to come. So they know more or less where everyone's holding from their class as they grow up. The guys aren't really that much into it. So therefore, you know, we don't really have class reunions. We don't bump into each other really in supermarkets. It just doesn't happen much. So where do you get to know really what happened to your friends that you grew up with in high school? Generally, it happens by smahot. So I went to this wedding recently, and because this was an old classmate, as he invited me, he invited the rest of the guys. So sure enough, they put us all on one table. So what started as a wedding turned out as a mini class reunion, which was great. It was great to see these guys. I haven't seen them in almost 20 years. It was amazing. I'm standing there on the table, and every time that door opened, we like your heart skipped a beat, like, oh my gosh, I haven't seen this guy in years. Everybody went bold. Everyone put on quite a few more pounds than we've ever expected. The athletes of the old class, they're coming in bent over and hunched, right? I mean, it was like amazing to see the before and after. We could have been a diet commercial, you know, the before and the after. Okay, whatever. But the bottom line is everyone's sitting just looking at each other. And then I found out something incredible. We found out that there's two guys from the old class, my classmates, that up until that point, at the age of 35 at that time, they're suffering. They were suffering. But such a suffering. We found out that one guy at 35 was the only guy in the class that never got married. And we also found out that another guy in the class, 35, was the only guy who married now for almost 14 years without children. These two guys were bemet, suffering. Now, it makes things worse when you get to these reunions slash weddings because everyone's going around the table and they're kind of filling everyone else in on where their lives went and how many kids they have and what are they doing and so on and so forth. They skipped over me, by the way. They said, yeah, we know what you're doing. But everybody else kind of, you know, this, I was an accountant, I became a lawyer, we're laughing, you know, who would ever think and that? You hated this and you were lousy in math. How did you end up an accountant? You know, the typical high school joking around. When it came around to the turn of these two guys, it was like they were hiding under the table. They were so embarrassed. It was hard for him to even say, well, I didn't get married yet, but I'm still looking, so who knows, maybe this year. And then he quickly passes the ball, so to speak, to the next guy sitting next to him. He didn't even want to talk. He didn't want to show his face. It hurt him so much. And sure enough, when we came to the other guy, he says, I married Baruch Hashem for 14 years, a wonderful girl. And he's talking about his wife, his wife, his wife. His... And we understand why. And then he says, well, maybe I'll be zochet to have children one day. And then quickly he drops the ball to the next guy, not wanting to harp on the focus on him because it's too painful. And everybody on the table, including myself, our hearts went out for these two guys. There was suffering in front of our eyes. And I know they're suffering because I myself... My wife and I, we didn't have kids right away. We had to wait a few years till finally Hashem blessed us with beautiful children. But that pain is unbelievable. 
It's such an unbelievable pain. You don't want to go out into public. You don't want to, you don't want to bump into people who you know because they might actually ask the question. No, that's the last thing you want to hear. You don't want to go to Brit Milan anymore. You don't want anyone's balaks anymore. You don't want to say, You don't want to hear that anymore. It hurts. Well, I thought that that was that. Easy come, easy go. We met each other for first time in 20 years. And we'll probably take another 20 years <laughs> until we see each other again. That's just the way life goes around. However, later on I bumped into one of them and listened to this story. After this wedding that year, the both of them, the one that never got married and the classmate that never had kids, they both went to Israel that year for different reasons. They both got to see two different rabbis, Mikubalim Tzadikim, in different sides of Israel. Randomly, as if without a clue, not knowing that the other guy was doing the same. And both guys, after comparing notes later on, found out that both rabbis told the two of them the exact same answer. The rabbi turned to him and said, I want you to think back to many years ago while you were growing up in school. Was there maybe somebody that you really bullied, that with your words you really ripped their heart out, you made them cry, you tormented them? Was there somebody over the years that you really hurt them to the extent that they fell into Yehush? Yehush means that they give up. They surrender on life. They can't take it anymore. Was there anyone that you drove them to such a point of pain that their tears flowed like a river and they had nothing left to live for because of your agony? And these two guys who were told and asked the same question, they're both thinking back. Now, ladies, it's, 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 it's 20 years later. That's a tough question to answer 20 years later. They're thinking back. They're thinking back. Each guy is thinking, and between me and you, although they were putting on a show for the rabbi, they told me immediately, the second the rabbi finished his statement, I knew exactly what he was talking about. And I was in that class. I also know exactly who the rabbi was talking about. I knew the guy that brought these two guys in common. The one kid that these two guys in high school used to torment and slaughter with their words daily. I remember the drop of a dime. This guy Hazit, his father passed away when he was young. He only was growing up with his mother and a few sisters. He had no father figure in his life. He lost a piece of him when daddy died. And because of that, the mother had it hard running the home and the financials and working and keeping a family. And because of that, he wasn't kept well. He had a problem with hygiene. He had a bad smell to him. It made him very pickable. He dressed like a schluch. So again, he was very pickable. He looked like he came to school sometimes in his pajamas because his mother was out already in the morning before he woke up. She was already working how many jobs to keep this family going, Hazita. And nonetheless, every day, this kid would come to school. These two same guys, they would rip into him. Hey, 
Look who's here. The clown from the circus. Wow. Buy him a bottle of right guard. They would kill him every day. Every And the guy would cry. And boys don't cry. Not in high school. They won't let you see it. They might be crying inside. But their pride wouldn't let you see it. This guy was crying in open. And it came to an extent where a few guys in the class, including myself, we put our foot down and we stopped it. But it went on too long. And the damage was done. This guy's world was shattered. This guy's life was literally shattered. He would go home every night crying. And he would beg his mother, please don't let me go back to school tomorrow. Send me to public school. But don't let me go to school. And she would cry. Look what these guys cost. A yatom to cry. An almanat to cry. They're playing with dynamite. And this guy he literally cried himself to bed at night. These guys knew exactly who the rabbi was talking about. And they understood that the only shot they have at getting their lives back is to try to fix the life that they destroyed. They had to start going now on a witch hunt. How are they going to track down a guy they haven't seen, heard of, or spoken to in 20 years? They started calling everybody. They started from the school. And from the school, they started to the mother's house. And from the mother's house, she finally gave them the number. They tracked down the guy. His wife called. Apparently, he got married. They said to themselves, they don't know how they're going to be received by him. So they're not going to call him in advance. They're just going to show up to his house. And they're going to beg for forgiveness. And by the way, ladies, when the rabbi told them, when you go to him and beg him for forgiveness, a mechila with verbal words will not work. Because you broke him so bad that just to go, just to, just to get away from you. I mean, when he looks at you, he's going to shake, the rabbi told him. It's 20 years later. You would expect things to wear off. No, not something so deep, not something so hurtful. When you go to him, you have to have already set a shtar chose shomechila, a document, a contract of forgiveness. And when you bring it to him, he needs to sign that he was mochel, the two of you, and that the gzera of heaven that's on the two of you should be broken. Wow. They had their work ahead of them. And sure enough, one night, they came in one late in the evening, making sure that he was home, and they knocked on the door, and this guy answered the door the third classmate, the victim. And these guys told me the story later on when I bumped into him. He said that he just looked at us. He couldn't even get the word of hi out of his mouth. He just looked at us and we saw that he started getting unnerved. We saw that the color in his face became suddenly flush, white. And then suddenly he kind of snaps out of it as if to pick up his pride. And he puts on this fake smile, hi. Haven't seen you guys in years. What are you guys doing here? Come on in. As if, as if, as if, as if. And they said, well, listen, we'll tell you why we're here. The first guy tells him, I'm 35. I haven't married. The only guy in the class that never got married. The other guy tells him, I'm 35. The only guy in the class who doesn't have kids. We understand why this happened to us. We know that we made your life miserable. And now Hashem is giving us a taste of our own medicine. We're begging you, please, 
bimochelas. We have a star mechila here that a rabbi from Israel wrote up for each of them. And please, if you could sign for each one of us a star mechila. Otherwise, our lives are through. I'm begging you! Are you mochelas? He looks at them. He thinks for a minute. He smiles. And he says, No, I'm not. They said, What? It's 20 years later. He says, Yeah, I know. It is 20 years later. And he says, For the last 20 years, and probably for the next 20 years, I lived a broken life because of the two of you. You robbed me of my self confidence. You robbed me of my self-image. How many nights I used to go to sleep crying. I was scared to walk out in public because of what you did to me. Every day you did a shahita on me, bet Yosef. A bang every day. You slaughtered me with your words. You killed me. You made fun of me. You destroyed me. There wasn't a day that I didn't go home crying. You want me to be mochel you? No way. I'm not mochel. They said, but you gotta. We're doomed. Please, you gotta do this. He says, no, I'm not Mochelio. And I will not be Mochelio. Ladies, look at this for a moment. Let's just take a breather here. 20 years? You would think that there would be a healing process? You would think time heals? But not at such deep cuts. We don't know what our words do to people. We don't realize that our words are like daggers. And we just shoot them out like arrows, you know? We just shoot them all over the place. And whenever they land, they land. And if it rips someone to pieces, oops! What do you mean, oops? You just destroyed someone's life! These guys thought it was funny! They thought it was entertainment! They thought it was, what's the big deal? Between the boys, a joke! He destroyed a guy forever. 20 years later, he would not be Mochel. He's still carrying and harboring the pain. Nonetheless, they said, okay, we'll offer you $1,000. I heard this from the guy himself, classmate. We'll offer you $1,000. Please give us the mechila. He says, no. They offered him $5,000. No, I'm not interested. Your money's not going to do it. They offered him, ladies, up to $20,000 just for mechila. They were each going to give 10 each. They were begging him, 20 grand, come on! What do you want already? Come on! He said, no way. He said, you destroyed my life. And my life, like any life, is worth more than $20,000. No way. Finally, these two guys saw they're not getting anywhere with him. That's it, they're doomed. Done. They're never going to get out of this gzerat. It is what it is, that's it. They did the crime, they're serving the time, and that's it. Both of them emotionally broke down crying. As they broke down crying, this guy looks at him and says, that's what I was waiting for. Because that's what you did to me every day. I wanted to see you cry. I went home crying every day because of you. I went to bed at night crying because of you. And I didn't have a father. He said, why, why, why would you guys do that to me? He says, now that I see you crying, now I'm going to give you the mechila. You know why? Because I'm not going to stoop to the low that you guys did. You are rotzchim. You are both murderers. 
I'm not a murderer. Just because you destroyed my life doesn't mean I should destroy yours. I'm not going to do what the terrible thing you did. And with those words, powerful words, he grabbed the pen and he signed the Shtar Mechila for both the guy who wasn't married and the Shtar Mechila for the guy who had no kids. I met, a few years later, which is only two years ago, I met one of the guys on Avenue J, which I never meet this guy, but Shamayim obviously wanted me to meet him. I met this guy on Avenue J, and he was walking, smiling, walking out of a shoe store with his wife. And I said, Mabruk, Mazal Tov, Mazal Tov. When did you get married? He says, I'm not married yet. I'm engaged, we're gonna be married. I wanna send you an invitation. I said, wow, you two of you look great together. He says, yeah, Duvia, I wanna tell you a story. And he tells me the story I just told you about what happened when they went to the knocking on the guy's door to get the mechila and how they finally got the mechila and how only a year and a half after the contract the mechila was signed, this guy found his zivug and got married at 37 and the other guy had a baby girl two or three years after that. Look at what Shamayim holds of the words that we shoot out like blades and how careful we need to be. These words were meant to build people. They were meant to build worlds. They were meant to inspire people. They were meant to talk to Bore Olam, not to use as an aid and a better to a murder, to a crime. And I know I said this in the past, and I'm not gonna take too much time on this point, but I want you to hear this. With my kids, and I want to share this to you between a father to mothers. I want you to hear this. I very strongly, my kids, they laugh about this, but they know how serious I'm about. Every year they go back to school and they come into the classroom anew. I have them already looking out and watching for the kids in the class who have no friends. And I have my girls, my Adina, my Sarah, my Yitzchak Zev, on the lookout, you see a kid that no one's talking to. You see a kid that people are picking on. You see a kid that the cliques in the class grouped in a way that somehow they were the oddball out. You run and you befriend that girl. You befriend that boy. You pick up his world. You give him a back. You give him an air. Everybody else is outside, they're sitting alone, just nibbling on their snack in their desk in an empty classroom. You don't have to be a brain surgeon to realize that the kid is crying out and suffering for someone to talk to him. You be that friend. And over the years I told you a few stories, I'm not going into it today, but this is the way our chinuch should be. We should be putting into our kids, into our hearts, into our spouses, the concept of a sensitivity to another person. We're teaching our kids today, our girls, they know every Ramban on Chumash. We're teaching them Orahayim. But what happened to the simple concept of Ben Adam Chavero? Today, even in the most religious circles, we still need an exercise to show a sensitivity, to stop, stop the stabbings, not the Arab stabbings, the Jewish stabbings, 
And when that stops, no goy can raise or wield the blade on us. That was the message of the rabbi. That was the powerful words. What an insight to the situation of today in Eretz Yisrael. What an insight. I believe that the reason why we can bring this into the parasha, although this speech has its own legs to stand on, but I want to tell you an insight. An insight on chesed. Because these are the parashiot of Abraham Avinu. These are the parashiot of achnasat orchim and chesed. Achnasat orchim. Chesed. People, they visualize it as something to do good for someone else, but as long as it doesn't take out too much from me. That's not the way we were brought up. My father used to tell us, chesed is not when you want to do it. It's when the other person needs it. Regardless if it's easy for you to do or not. Chesed is not just a time where you happen to be driving down Coney Island anyways, and there's someone standing by the bus stop, and hey, I'm going towards Jay anyways, so let me take you there, because why not? What do I have to lose? I'm going there regardless. Wow, what a chesed I did. Yes, you did a chesed. Don't get me wrong. You did a wonderful thing. The person was outside, now they got to the destination quicker, in a car rather than a bus. A wonderful mitzvah. But you want to hear what a real chesed is? A real chesed is when you're going to Jay, and this person needs to go to W. (laughs) And you're ready to turn the car around, to take them in a different direction that you weren't going, because you see their needs. Do you understand the underlining, powerful message of chesed? Focus on their needs and put yours aside. Focus on them and what they need at the moment. Forget about yourself. Be selfless. The Midav Abraham Avinu is not just chesed. It's not just gemilut chasadim. Those are results of the personality of a selfless giant. That was Abraham Avinu. He focused just on the needs of what the other person needed. If that's the case... Chesed, gemilut chasadim, can be done in so many ways. Not just on a meal, on an extra plate on a table on Shabbat. Not just on a ride in a car. But if you see somebody suffering, you see that person that doesn't have anybody left in the world. And you focus just on their needs. And you forget about what everybody else is going to say. And you forget about what the world is going to think. Because you want to pick up that person and help them for whatever it takes. That's a Baal Chesed. And that's what we try to tell our kids. My kid once told me, But Abba, if I go now and befriend this girl, all the other girls are going to start making fun of me. And they actually started asking my daughter, how come you're uh, even talking to that girl? She's not part of our group. And she says to me, I'm going to lose my friends. I said, if you're going to lose your friends because of that, they were never your friends. But this girl will never forget you for the rest of your life. She'll be a friend of yours forever. Choose. You want fake friends for a year or two? Or a real friend for life. Make your choice. Whatever you want. I'm not pushing you in either direction. 
but it's your call. That's chesed. Focus on what the other person needs. Be sensitive to the other person. Stop for a minute and ask. It's not about me. It's not about my entertainment. It's not about my frustrations. It's not about me venting. It's not about me ripping apart the world that crossed my path. It's about the needs of the other person. Bring people into your life and inspire them. Build them up. That's the greatest chesed you can do. Better than a meal on Shabbat. Better than a ride. This is the biggest chesed in the world. To give a person a life. To give them hope. To give them a future. To build them back up. To put them back on their feet when others have destroyed them with their tongues and their knives and their blades. You give that person back a life. You gave them everything. The biggest chesed in the world. That was Abraham Avinu. That was Abraham Avinu. Ladies, I want to share with you, I know I only have a few minutes left, but I want to share with you a great story, really. Aye, aye, aye. You know, there was, a, there was a great Talmud Chacham, a Rosh Kolel, who till today lives in Bnei Brak. I actually heard this from a family member. A lot of times people ask me, where do you get your stories from? I check out my stories. And I go back to the source of it has to be at least from the Sheva Krovim that the Torah talks about. If it's a mother, a father, a sister, a brother, somebody within the close proximity of a family, I'll go with it. If not, believe me, there have been some doozies that I had to let go, which for me wasn't easy. When I see a great story, it's like a drunk that's looking at a bottle of whiskey. But at the end of the day, you've got to have your hands off because you've got to be on the mark. I just have a more finicky taste for stories than maybe others. Let me tell you what I heard from the family of this Rosh Kolel. He's a Rosh Kolel in Bnei Brak, a great Tamil Chacham. And one day he was coming home, Ben Azdarim. And, uh, you know, he was going through the mail. And he grabs the whole stack of mail. And he brings it upstairs. And as he's making his way up to his apartment, he's fingering it through. And he stops dead in his tracks. And he's looking at an envelope with the return address of Switzerland. He says to himself, Switzerland, Schweiz, in Hebrew. I don't know anybody in Switzerland who. It was a very fancy envelope. It was one of those big envelopes. So he makes his way into the apartment and he starts ripping through the mail and he rips open the envelope from Schweiz. And as he's going through this envelope, he pulls out another envelope. He says, wow, look at that. He rips open that envelope and he looks inside and there's another envelope. Remember when we were kids, they had those babushka dolls, you know, that... <laughs> today, I told that today, they look at me like, what are you talking about, Rabbi? I said, don't worry, one day they'll make an app. All right, whatever. Anyways, but he was ripping off envelope after envelope, till finally he came to the envelope with the wedding invitation, and he pulls it out, and he opens it up in some beautiful paper, linen paper, and he sees what a beautiful monogram... And quickly, he zips through the wording, you know, with gratitude to Hashem, you know. He comes down to the bottom. Who are these two families? Do I know them? He looks at one family. No. He looks at the other family. No. Never heard of either of them. That's probably a mistake. They probably were looking for someone with the same name as I. He probably had a famous name. Say, I, they told me not to mention the name, so I can't. But the famous name is the same name as I. And he also lives in B'nai Brock. So probably they got the buildings mixed up. So you know what? It's funny because it's made out to my name and my wife's name. What's the chances that there's going to be another guy in the city that's going to have the same name with the same wife's name? But it's clearly a mistake because 
I don't know either of these families. Okay. A few minutes later, his wife comes home. And he tells her, you know, Davar Muzar, something very odd. Take a look. We got a wedding invitation from Switzerland, and I don't have a clue either of the families. Why would someone send me? I don't know them. The wife says, really? Schweiz? Switzerland? He says, yeah. She says, let me see. She goes to open up the barrage of envelopes, and as she reaches down, she sees there's another envelope all the way at the bottom, past the invitation, that the husband didn't even pull out. So she reaches down deep into, you know, Mary Poppins' bag. She pulls it out, and she rips open the final envelope, and she pulls out two round-trip tickets from Tel Aviv to Switzerland. And each ticket was made out, one to the husband's name, and one to the wife's name. And she looks. Yes, Kartisim, there are tickets here. The Schweiz, to Switzerland. And he's, oh, I don't believe it, she tells him. Look at this. She was smiles ear to ear. And the husband says, wait one second, we don't even know the people. And she says, <laughs> I'm going to Switzerland. Two free tickets? Are you joking? How many times does a Rosh Kollel's wife have a shot to go to Switzerland? I'm going to Switzerland. He says, Tanagi, relax. Wait one second. We don't know the people. She says, I don't care. They sent us tickets. We're going to Switzerland. He says, wait one second. Before we jump on any plane, you know, by the return address, there's a phone number. Let me call them. Let me find out who we're talking about. She says, okay, yeah, go ahead, call. But I'm holding on to these tickets. He said, okay, go ahead. He gets on the phone, and he calls Switzerland. A man gets on the phone. Shalom Harav. He says, Shalom. Mize. The voice on the other side says, I don't want to tell you my name. Ma? What do you mean? I see your name on the, on the, on the, uh, on the invitation. I don't want to tell you my nickname. You might recognize me. Oh, okay. So tell me, do I know you? He says, yes, I know you and you know me. He says, I don't understand. If I know you, how come I don't recognize your voice or your name? He says, Harav, listen, I'm asking you as a favor to me and as a favor to Chatan and Kala. Please, take the tickets that I gave you. Come to Switzerland. I will only tell you in person my story and believe me, it'll be worth it. The rabbi said, I don't exactly just get on a plane for some strange voice who's asking me please to trust him to go all the way to Switzerland. He says, Harav, listen, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, trust me. You know, now ladies, typically, if someone would have called me and sent me tickets and said, come to Switzerland, I have a wedding, trust me, I don't think I would have got on the flight. But maybe it was a combination between something struck this rabbi that was very genuine with the voice over the phone and it pushed him to actually consider to go. Or maybe it had to do with his wife that was still swinging the two tickets in the air screaming, we're going to Switzerland! So it was a combination of both, but whichever way you want to slice it, the family member told me that he was moved. And he felt that there was something here. And he followed up. And at the end of that week, they were on a plane to Switzerland. They landed in Switzerland airport. And they came out. And there was a magnificent limousine waiting for them. And the Rosh Kollel stands there and says, This is probably a mistake. 
And the driver of the limousine, an Israeli, he's standing there holding a sign with the rabbi's name on it. And he's looking around. There's no other rabbi with that name except me. And then the driver sees that the man is actually looking. And he says, wow, I, 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 I'm in the middle of a class. I'll call you back. He says, wow, you know, it's really for me. He turns to his wife. The limousine's fast. And she looks at him. She jumps into the limousine. He jumps into the limousine. They drive off to the countryside. As they go out to the Swiss countryside, beautiful resort homes, estates of the wealthiest of Switzerland, they come up to this magnificent house. I mean, this was a house with acres and acres. You know, with the houses that the gates open and close as if there was no mean or manner to it. They drive in. They come around the circular driveway up to the doors. They come up. They knock on the door. And there's a butler that brings them in. The wife looks at the husband. He has She says, oh, we're in a way. And the husband is thinking, what is going on the butler tells him, please wait inside in the master's study. He'll be downstairs in a few minutes. The Rosh Kolel walks into the study of this man, and it was basically the size of this room. And it was wall-to-wall svarim, literally wall-to-wall. The rabbi was impressed. Such a library of svarim, it must be a very learned man. Or maybe he's a book collector. So he wanted to see. There's only one way to tell. He walked up to the, to the Svarim Shank. He walked up to the bookcase and he pulled down a Sefer. And he opened up a random Sefer. And he saw all over the Sefer there were writings, quotations, Haga'ot, Ha'arot. Wow, this guy is a real Tamid Chacham. Who is this guy? Switzerland? With such wealth, with such prestige? And he knows me? I don't have a clue. They wait for a few minutes, and then the master of the house comes downstairs. And he's in a smoking jacket, and he has a long, grayish-white beard. And he walks up to the rabbi from Bnei Brak, and he gives him a hug! And the rabbi is hugging and thinking to himself, oh, don't let a guy <laughs> He's hugging a stranger, but okay! And then finally the rabbi says to the master of the house, please, enough with the mysteries. I don't know what possessed me to come out to Switzerland. But please, now that I'm here, who are you? What's going on? So the master looks at the rabbi and says, I see you don't remember me. He says, no. I'll tell you, rabbi, but listen carefully. When I was 16 years old, I was the son of one of the wealthiest Swiss Jews in the world. I grew up with such comfort, such luxury, such wealth, that in yeshiva they told me, you're so pampered, you'll never get to really learn Torah. Every time you lift a finger, you have a servant running to your beck and call. To be able to be great in Torah, you have to sacrifice. You have to work. You have to sweat at it. You have to give your heart over to it. Here in Switzerland, it's not going to happen for you. You're way too pampered. You want to become a real Talmud Chacham? You got to pick yourself up. And you got to go to Eretz Yisrael. Go to the great yeshiva of Panovich in Bnei Brak. Here it's not going to happen. And by the way, ladies, I just want to tell you, so many conversations I have with mothers here, and they always tell me, Rabbi, what's the big deal? 
Why can't my son learn here? Why are you making me send him to Israel? Why can't he learn in America? There are yeshivot there. They learn in shuls at night. What's the problem? The problem is that he goes to yeshiva by Lexus and he comes back by Land Rover. And then he goes out with his friends in Corvettes. It's not happening. There's no, there's no sacrifice. There is nothing that's going to make a guy really work. Thank God we have a very affluent life. But because of that, there's so much distraction here. They need to get away from the distraction. They need to go to a place that they can detox and just learn. And that's what they told this Swiss boy as well. And he took their words. And he went to Bnei Brak. Well, ladies, in those years, he walked into the Yeshiva in Panovich. And it was already in the summer. And it must have been 100 degrees. And the yeshiva at that time did not have air conditioning yet. So he walked into a steam bath. And he was walking up and down. He was hardly, uh, he, was, he couldn't breathe in the Bet Midrash. And he said to himself, oh boy, there's no way I'm going to survive this. I'm coming from a, an air conditioned castle. I'm going to be able to make it here? No way. But he pushed himself. Let me try it. And then when they showed him the dormitory, where there was a room the size of a cubicle with two bunk beds, where literally there was no closet space, nor drew space for anybody. He says, there's no way I'm going to survive here. And he was the outcast, he was the outcast of the yeshiva. And because he walked around so finicky and so touchy-touchy, nobody wanted to have to do anything with him. And he was angry at the world. He had no havrutot. The roommates wouldn't talk to him. He was miserable for two weeks straight. Till finally one day, he said, that's it. He told the rabbi, I had enough. I am going to walk into the Bet Midrash, walk up to the Mashgiach and tell him, listen, I tried it. It's just not for a Switzerland boy. I'm going home. I can't survive under these conditions. It's not happening. Maybe for the Israelis, I can't do it. That was it. So he says, I walked into the Bet Midrash of Panovich. I walked right up the aisle. And as I was going to the Mashgiach to tell him, I'm out. An older Bachur sits up, grabs my arm. And he says, hey, I've been meaning to talk to you. Come here for a second. You know, I've been watching you for the last two weeks. And I saw that, Mamash, you're miserable. I know that you're coming from Chutzlaretz and probably you're not used to the ways and, you know, the comforts here in Israel. But I want to tell you something. It's like everything in life. You just got to give it your all and you'll survive it. You'll get used to it. I see there's something special on your face. I see you could be a tremendous guy. But Hazit, you have no, you have no chavrutot. And I realize that the guys in your room don't talk to you. You must be miserable. Listen to me. This older guy was one of the best guys in yeshiva. He turns to this Swiss bachur and tells him, I'm ready to drop my chavruta for two weeks. I'm going to learn with you for two weeks every day just to get you on your feet. Not just that. I'm going to pull you out of your dormitory room and I'm going to bring you to my room. My room is the Hashubi room. You know, in every dormitory, there's the room of the older guys. That's the corner room, generally, in the hallway. They have two windows. You don't just make it into a room like that. You've got to be in the dorm for years till you make yourself up with a lot of protexia and a lot of pull till you finally get that corner room. This kid, this whistling kid, was brought straight into the room by this older guy. And suddenly, they became friends. 
They start to talk to each other. And they were chavutah together. And when everyone in the yeshiva saw that this kid from Switzerland was hanging with one of the top guys in the yeshiva, overnight he became a success story. Overnight, everybody said, wow, if this guy is giving this kid the time of day, he must be something special. So suddenly, this kid from Switzerland, he says, talking about himself, he says, I started to get so many friends. So many guys wanted to learn with me. So many guys thought I was something wow. And after two weeks, that guy put me on my feet. He gave me my life back. He cut me off the minute before I was going to bail out. After that, he went back to his havuta. I had chavrutot of my own. I left his room. I went back to my room. I became one of the most popular guys in the yeshiva. And I ended up continuing and learning in Panovich for the next few years. I got married in Israel. I stayed in Kolel for another 15 years. And then I came back to Switzerland. And now, now I'm the chief rabbi of Switzerland. Now all the yeshivot, and all the batiknesia are run through me. That guy saved my life because he took a minute and instead of everybody else's bad, funny looks and I had nothing to do with anybody, this guy saved me and built me up and inspired me and gave me the right words at the right minute. He gave me a life. He says, do you know what would have happened to me if he wouldn't have stopped me? I would have been a nobody. And Switzerland would not have had a chief rabbi. He turns to the rabbi from Nebrak and says, Do you know who that guy was? It was you. You were the one. And although you might have forgotten me, because we're talking 30, 40 years ago, although you might have forgotten me, I will never, ever forget you. Every night I close my eyes. And literally your face is in my head. That was the guy that built me up and gave me a future to live right at the moment that I was about to give up. Now you understand why I brought you out here. This is the power of a few well-placed words. This is what the rabbi was telling us. Those words were meant to build worlds, meant to build people. To give him a life, to give him hope, to give him potential, to give him chizuk, to give him a gav, to give him back their confidence, their self-image, their self-worth. And instead, says the rabbi, chas v'shalom, those words are pointed against each other and they stab into each other. And because we don't stop the stabbing of words, the stabbing of the blades of the goyim yet goes on. Just this morning I heard there were another three stabbings in Rishon Litzion. We got to stop it. And then it will stop. We got to become more sensitive. We got to realize the power and the potential of what words can do to build people in their lives and how sensitive a wrong word can destroy a child. It could destroy a spouse, a husband, a wife, a friend, a neighbor. Those words, they're gifts. They were meant to be powerful, godly messages. Let's not mess them up. Bezat Hashem, we should be zocheh. That the moment that we take the blade out of the word, 
The moment we take the blades out of our words is the moment that the blades of the goyim will be taken away from them. We'll see at that moment an achdut in Klal Yisrael. A love that everyone has each other's best interest, inspiring each other to something of the greater people we were meant to be. That will be a moment that we can finally see a geula. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. This is Rabbi Dubi Ben Shushan from Congregation Magen Abraham. Please tune in every week on Thursdays at 6 p.m. Have a great week. Shabbat Tov.